my name is Lydia Kincaid. I'm the Managing Director of IIM Innovation in Motion. We are an early stage investment platform focusing on agriculture, animal health, and human health uh, in the seed to Series A level. I have our managing member with us, Lee Harris. Um, and if you've listened to our podcast before, you know we talk about a lot of different issues, so, so to speak, as we see startups pitch their business um, and founders come to our group to, to convince us that their startup is worthy of investment. Um, today, we're going to focus on three, if we can get through those three, because there's a lot to talk about with each of these independently, but our issues trifecta for the day. The top three items we'll be discussing are messy cap tables um, or capitalization tables, um, secondly, stock options and restricted stock, and finally, follow-on investments, how investors look at those um, and different kind of rules of thumb for thinking about things like that. So how about Lee? How about we start with capitalization tables? Maybe you could start us off even with a definition, and then we can go back and forth on some issues that we've seen within those capitalization tables with startups that we've worked with. Well, a cap table, as we call it, uh, shorthand, is a ledger, frankly, that uh, that's all it is. It's a ledger, that, and it, it actually outlines who owns what in the company. Uh, it, uh, we, we talk about messy cap tables, particularly at this early stage investing. Usually you don't see real messy cap tables at series C, series D, et cetera. Why? Because uh, the sophisticated investors have taken the steps necessary to clean those cap tables up uh, if, if a, a company gets to that stage of funding. Uh, but we see it, as you well know, often at this early stage angel stage, seed stage, whatever you want to call it, of investment. Uh, and, and what do I mean by messy? And that's a situation where that cap table could create complications, risks, you know, maybe there's some unfairness or inefficiencies. It's a potential for, for future problems uh, because of the way it's, it's structured. And a lot of investors, including us, we will stop considering an early stage company if the cap table is deemed to be overly messy. Now, sometimes those messy items can be resolved. Sometimes it's just too much trouble. And uh, sometimes what has been done is just uh, you can't reconcile it and, and move forward. So uh, what are some of the common issues? Uh, and too many ledger entries can cause problems, uh, especially when it comes to voting. Uh, and, and particularly if there are preferred classes of stock that have been created. So having 10 investors on a cap table isn't that big of a deal. Having 20 investors on that cap table isn't great. And if you have 30 investors uh, before you've really gotten to that seed stage investment, the professional uh, series investment, that's going to be a real problem. Uh, I know we've, we've seen that happen before. Uh, there's a couple of instances that have come to mind. You might uh, explain to the audience exactly what you've seen in real life in a messy cap table. Sure. Um, so, mentioned, you, Lee, you mentioned that 30 investors on a cap table is problematic. Absolutely. And so what that often looks like that I've seen at the early stages, that there's there's a lot of investors coming in for very small amounts of capital. So 5,000 here, 10,000 here, maybe 50,000 here or there. And so what that means is, is that there's so many cooks in the kitchen, if you will, uh, trying to get anything passed from a voting perspective can be very complicated. There could be 
different deals given to every single one of those investors. That's really the biggest problem that I see with so many investors, really any anything more than five investors on a capitalization table. If there are different convertible notes that are outstanding or safe agreements, and then other people maybe hold equity in the company, that creates messiness. And that can be very, very difficult to clean up. Um, nobody knows really who owns the company or who is in control. That's a big concern here, who's really in control of this company. Because then again, when you get so many investors and you're on your cap table, um, what usually has happened is that the founder shares have been diluted substantially, um, whether it's a single founder or a co-founder or maybe even a small team um, who used to own 100% of the company when the company launched. Now, all of a sudden, they're down to 30% ownership of the company and they haven't even raised a Series A. So from our minds, like, where is the incentive for that team or that co-founder pair to really exceed and stick with this company in the long term um, if that much has just already been given away. Um, and we know that even though most founders are not the CEO of the company when it exits, that's still a very long path and a, a long ways to go. And each round of capital that's raised, um, founder shares are what gets diluted typically the most. So it only gets worse over time. Um, and what I've seen, Lee, is sometimes these cap tables get so messy, even before they raise a Series A, they have to have a whole recap. So they have to like redo everything anyway. Um, so maybe the earliest investors, they get trued up to the later investor terms. So that's not really fair to them. Um, or if it's the other way, I mean, that's not fair for the later investors to get better deal terms if the company had already mitigated some of those risks by the time they come in. So it can just be a big hassle all around at a big legal expense and lots of people get grumpy and unhappy. Um, so we would recommend keeping things as simple as possible with your capitalization table, really even avoiding safes, convertible notes, if at all possible. Um, equity rounds are typically the simplest way um, to expand your investor base. And th there's a few things, Lee, that we were talking about earlier as well that are particularly problematic. Um, so what we see often, unfortunately, is the inclusion of non-capital participating individuals. Um, so maybe advisors who only participate here or there, or maybe some um, friends of the company, potential collaborators that all of a sudden have equity and they're showing up on the capitalization table. That can be really problematic. Um, we've also seen dead equity. Now, what is that? That's the presence of previous founders who left the startup but still retain equity. And we can get into some vesting issues that's more related to stock options, but but founder shares can really be problematic in that sense as well. That really needs to be taken care of as early as possible. What we want to see in a cap table is that it's reflective of the of the commitment and dedication of the current team. We want to see incentives for that team to excel. And we really would like to see that investor and founder interests are aligned and that can be reflected very clearly in a cap table. What else, Lee? Well, one of the things that can be done for uh, a lot of the small investors that may, may appear, and that that can happen, we understand that. Uh, a founder may have gone to friends and family and somebody invests 2,500 and somebody else invests $4,000. And so there's a bunch of little bitty guys on the gap table. Uh, it may not feel but to them like they're little bitty guys, but in the overall scheme of things, they really are. And one solution could be, if they're agreeable, to roll them into a single entity, 
that owns whatever percentage co collectively they have and make that one voting block. Uh, that's not something that we would do for a founder, but that's something that the founder could have their, their legal counsel uh, take care of for them. Uh, and would we, if, if that were the only problem, we would probably be inclined to continue working with that company through the, the, the process of getting that resolved. Uh, I think you mentioned that uh, you know, low founder or CEO equity can be problematic, and that's true. Uh, if after a seed round, the founders have less than, say, 60% of the equity, and you're not even really the Series A yet, that's a huge problem. It's, it can be concerned to us about low motivation on the part of the, of the founder slash CEO uh, because uh, they're only going to get diluted down even further substantially uh, in subsequent funding rounds. So uh, for a Series A, if that threshold is around 45% or so, oh, we're, we're getting really concerned about it. it. Usually we see 10 to 20% dilution with each funding round. That's, a, that's healthy. If you're in that range, that's probably okay. So after that initial seed funding round, if you still have, as a founder, you still have 80% of your equity, uh, that's good. If you have 85%, that may be even better. Uh, and if, a, if, if that initial seed round, if, if the investors have gotten too greedy uh, and they're doing a 25 or 30% dilution to the founder, that doesn't serve the founder well. And we would look at that and say, whoa, uh, that, it just can't be fixed. Um, so that's that's a real issue. Another problem that we've seen from time to time is uh, where founders are giving up excessive equity to one or more startup accelerators. Uh, I won't name them, but there are a number of these accelerators that take a piece of the company. Sometimes they take a piece of the company with anti-dilution uh, sort of provisions in their agreement. And that's really not a good thing. Uh, and I don't have a rule of thumb. I don't know if you do, but uh, first of all, there shouldn't be any anti-dilution provisions with an accelerator. And secondly, if, if they're taking seven, eight, 10% of the company right out of a chute, that's, that seems to me to be potentially problematic for us. Uh, so, and, and, and mentioning anti-dilution rights, if, if you have early investors, advisors uh, that have gotten anti-dilution rights, that's, that's, that's a real problem uh, because uh, now you're asking for a much smaller group of investors to take all the dilution in subsequent funding rounds, and there's going to be a, a, an issue with the fairness that I mentioned earlier. So... Uh, and and I think the dead weight that you brought up that's that's very true, and we've seen that before, where there were three founders, uh, one of them dropped out, but got uh, got fully invested uh, with their uh, their shares from the get go, and they're gone. There's no motivation whatsoever there, and they are truly a drag on the cap table. Now, if they had one percent, that may not be such a big deal, but if they had five percent or ten percent or uh, if, if it was a third, a third, and a third, they have 33%. And uh, now you have 66% left that you can give, give away on subsequent funding rounds. That doesn't work. Right. Lee, you mentioned accelerators sometimes have anti-delusion um, 
clauses in their agreements. Universities do that as well. And we see that as a big problem. I think we've talked about this on other podcasts, um, but often startups are, that are spun out of an academic institution. Um, they gain access to that intellectual property through, um, you know, giving up certain things from the company. Um, and a lot of times these founders have no idea the implications of their decisions. Um, and so universities will say, okay, well, we're going to own 10% of your company um, and we can't be diluted forever. Um, and on top of that, we're going to take a portion of your revenue, top line revenue as well. Um, and so that can be very problematic for the same reasons you outlined for the for the accelerator. Um, it creates a smaller pool of the rest of us who are getting diluted over time. Um, and so it, that, that to me, um, is it can be a really big deal um, for startups that are trying to seek private capital um, from investors. You wanted to add one more thing, Lee? Yeah, and I also think that uh, you could completely blow up a cap table uh, real early if there are warrants, uh, if you have some kind of funky conversion rights, uh, cumulative dividends, payment in kind dividends, uh, all of this is more exotic than we would like to see at this very early stage with a with a company. And a lot of times, what happens, founders will piece together the, the the initial funding in whatever way they can, not realizing that they may be impeding uh, future funding rounds. And just as their company starting to get traction and they need more more capital to, to scale, they hit the wall because of, of all this nonsense that's been created through this piecing together of that uh, that initial cap table. So yeah, that that's something that, that has to be uh, thought of uh, that. And uh, I guess I would throw into that same category, uh, you get stacking of uh, participating liquidation preferences. Uh, if you have non-participating liquidation preferences, which you might explain, that's preferable, certainly. If you have participating liquidation preferences, uh, and, and that shows up on a cap table, or will we will find out when we dig into the cap table, that's really bad news at this early stage. So how about, I mean, speaking of, you know, some of the topics you brought up, how about we shift gears and talk about stock options and research sure. stock? Um, maybe, Lee, you can share, for one, why that's important, for founders to think about um, when they're launching their business and maybe some problems um, that we've seen associated with this this part of the business. Sure, you know, the stock options are, for a startup company, particularly important where compensation for the employees comes into play. Uh, a startup company may not be able to pay competitive salaries to larger companies, but uh, if, if an employee is uh, interested in that company and, and would work for a slightly lower salary or maybe a significantly lower salary, but receive a piece of the company potentially in exchange, uh, that's certainly a way that uh, you can leverage uh, the existing capital that you have to work with and you're not having to pay it out as, as a salary. Now, th that takes some real planning up front, which is difficult many times for startup founders to do. Uh, and one of the most common mistakes that gets made is there, there's a failure to get board approval. If you don't have a real board that is truly examining a stock option plan and does not approve it, this could mean that the options really haven't been granted in the first place. And if the problem is fixed later, uh, it's typically going to be at a higher value as opposed to 
a lower price that that employee was supposed to receive. So then you have some major unhappiness on the part of the employee down the road when you get to the point of fixing it. So I would say, first and foremost, get board approval. Secondly, you must grant these stock options at fair market value. Uh, and this is where we get into the IRS. Uh, they, the IRS gets into our lives, obviously, uh, when, when these grants uh, have to be made at fair market value and on the grant date, or the IRS will always impose some serious penalties. Um, and I, I would say that there's a, uh, a tip here also if, if you've had prior funding rounds, just be careful about using that last valuation uh, for the, the value of, of a stock option plan that you might be putting into place at that point in time, uh, because there, are pro there may be convertible notes, you may have preferred shares, and that may not be uh, the, the, the best way to provide a, a true fair market value. And the best way to do that is to hire an outside company. Now, it's going to cost some money. It's going to cost a few thousands of dollars, uh, but you need a company that specializes in those kind of valuations, and you've got to do so in compliance with Section 409, uh, 409A of the Internal Revenue Code. And what that means is when you set up the stock option plan, you have to submit to the IRS the Form 409A that explains your valuation, and then guess what? You're on the hook every 12 months thereafter for repeating that valuation. That 409A form has to be filed. Or if there's uh, an eminent fundraise or a major transaction, you may want to hold off on doing that uh, and stop granting stop options until, until that's closed. Uh, and at that point, a new 409A would need to be filed. But if you don't file that 409A, you can have big time problems with the IRS, and it's just not worth it's just not worth it uh, on on these stock options. Now, uh, there's there's the incentive stock option uh, plan, and there's the non qualified stock option plan, and it gets a little bit tricky uh, where this is concerned. Uh, there's what's called a I think it's I've heard it called the hundred thousand dollar rule, where uh, an ISO or an incentive stock option, they're tracked when they're sold, not when they're exercised. And for the non-qualified uh, stock options, the stockholder is taxed on the spread, the difference between that grant price and the exercise price. And there's a maximum where the ISO is concerned of, of $100,000. So uh, what you don't want is a non-qualified stock option plan uh, that gets in the way of your ISO, where you 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 can actually trigger having it taxed as regular income. So if you don't go over that hundred thousand dollar maximum in your ISO plan, and uh, you don't trigger that uh, that that ordinary or regular income, um, and that's for the every financial year. So it, the whole point here is these stock options are tricky, tricky, tricky. And you need to get professional advice. You're going to have to spend a little bit of money. Uh, but above all, make sure that you have board approval and that you're granting stock options at fair market value, that you're filing your 409A, 
and that you're paying attention to the other uh, aspects of an SEC Rule 701. This starts to get really hairy. We don't need to go into all those details. But I have a question for you, a couple of questions for you, actually. And one is, you know, what is a healthy amount of outstanding stock for a company to issue in its uh, ISO, in its incentive stock option plan? We usually like to see about 10% set aside for employees, uh, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on the stage of the company. Um, but often at the Series A, if there's not that stock option plan in place, the lead investor will require it as a condition to close. Um, and usually, in my experience, that's been right around 10%. Um, so that, that's what I typically see. Lee, we were talking about some stats related to this, though, um, and I'm, I don't remember the source that she pulled from, but there are sources out there that can get pretty granular if you want to compare maybe what your thought process is compared to what many, many other startups are allocating out in terms of title, position, who who gets allocated what on yeah. average. Do you want to share some of those, Lee? Sure, sure. The, let's let's assume that we're talking 10% uh, of the outstanding stock. The These are just rules of thumb, and I don't remember where I saw these, but the CEO would be somewhere in that two and a half percent range, maybe, pardon me, maybe as, as high as 4%. The CTO, chief technology officer, is probably 1%, maybe up to one and a half percent. I would say 1% is probably the right number. COO, 1%. CFO, uh, maybe half a percent to 1%, somewhere in that range. Board members, if they are being compensated at all, uh, you're probably talking maybe two tenths of a percent to seven tenths of a percent, and then you get into some of the the employed positions, the lead engineers and senior engineers and software businesses, and you're talking uh, much much smaller amounts. <clears throat> it's important, I think, that uh, when uh, when a company does start a stock option plan. Understand, you don't have to to grant all of it, uh, because if you do, you don't have anything left over to, to 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 grant to new employees that you're trying to attract as you scale the business. So, uh, I think it's much. If if I were advising a founder right now, I would say <clears throat> authorize ten percent, but start at five percent and work your way up to ten percent as you scale. Otherwise, if you start at ten, if you grant it. 10% and and that's where you uh, end up, you're going to have problems uh, attracting additional employees that you need. Uh, and, and another thing I think that, that comes into play here are vesting schedules. And so uh, one of the things that's really concerning is to see a vesting schedule that's too short. Uh, if it's too long, then there's some issues there as well with the motivation People saying, oh, gosh, I've got the golden handcuffs on and it's going to take me you know, six, seven, eight years to best. Uh, but I think I personally think a minimum vesting period should be 48 months uh, with a one year cliff requirement. So what does that mean? That means that uh, an employee has to work that first year to begin uh, vesting and then they would vest a third, a third and a third, perhaps to the next three years. So that by the end of the fourth year, they're fully vested. That should be a minimum, perhaps even five years or, or 
six years, depending on the project. If the project is a long-term project that the company is working on, uh, perhaps it, it should stretch out that vesting period. If it's a fairly condensed time frame, maybe the shorter 48 month would, would work okay. What, what have you seen before? On average, three years. Uh, from, from beginning to end of a vesting schedule is about average. I mean, in, in thinking about startups in particular, if their goal is to have an exit event within five to seven years, um, and if, if, so if the vesting period is too long, even if it's five years, I mean, then that's a pretty long window to try to stick something out and then you might miss the mark. I mean, an employee, someone you're trying to recruit might be able to see that there's a misalignment there um, and you don't want people to feel disenfranchised or demotivated. Um, I, I would think uh, as a founder, you want someone to be highly motivated to come work for you and to stay working with you. Um, of course, people are passionate about what they're doing in the startup world, um, but we also want to fairly compensate them for their efforts and for their expertise. Um, so maybe a little more, a little bit less, right around three years. Is it? Well, and, and also that can be, some of that could be resolved if, if, if there's a provision in the vesting schedule that should there be an exit of some sort, that right. there's a, an acceleration of the vesting period so that people aren't penalized. <clears throat> uh, and again, that speaks to the, the length of time that project is anticipated uh, to take before there is an exit of some sort. So uh, I think Another thing that's important, cash needs to be paid to exercise the option. So if if you're three years in, four years in, and the employee says, okay, I've got these options, I want to exercise them, and they're at uh, 25 cents on the dollar, that employee needs to come up with the cash necessary to exercise that option. They should not be cashless options. I think that's that distorts the whole point of this. Uh, I agree. And if, if there's anyone listening who's considering working for a startup or who wants to get into that ecosystem, um, I would read very, very carefully whatever the whole compensation package is, especially if there's equity included. Um, and maybe have a third party review that for you as well, because sometimes, um, unfortunately, people get brought into a situation and they have, you know, unicorns and rainbows in their eyes. They're excited to work for a company and see a big potential upside. But then when that exit event happens, turns out they didn't have many of those options granted anyway. So I think um, just really understanding what you're signing up for and what what you're getting into, Lee. Well, I think the company should also have the, the right of first refusal to buy the shares if the option is exercised and the, the shareholder wants to sell. It's, a, it's, it's really not good from our standpoint as a venture capital uh, firm to uh, think that they, they could be sold potentially as secondary shares somewhere out there to, to misaligned investors. And so if, if, if somebody wants to exercise that option and, and uh, uh, they want to sell the shares they have purchased, typically you would see that, uh, that right of first refusal being uh, part of the provision. But sometimes that gets missed along the way too in the, in the early frenzy of getting a startup going. Right. I agree with that. And that, that is usually pretty standard, but it can certainly be, it's usually pretty standard, but it can be overlooked. You know what, Lee, we're right at our 25 minute mark. I don't think we made it to our follow on investments conversation. I feel like we could spend a whole podcast episode talking about that because there are so many different nuances and variables um, to that. Overall, I would say when it comes to capitalization tables and also stock options, you mentioned this a couple of times overly, 
but hire a professional to help you with that um, if you're a founder and getting started because this is a whole different industry um, outside of probably what it is that you're building um, or you know working towards within your startup. Um, and the problems can be really, really problematic um, for the company, can really shut down a company and prevent you from raising any money in the future. Um, Lee, anything else you want to add? No, I say I think let's let's take up the uh, follow-on investing uh, subject in the next podcast. I think uh, there is a whole lot to unpack there, and and it's a fascinating subject. So we'll talk about that next time. That sounds good to me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Lee.